This is the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast for women over 50 who aren't done yet. You may have seen the worst of aging and are hoping there's a better way. There is, and I'm going to show you how. In interviews, book reviews, rants, and stories each week, I'm going to bring you the latest science-based info on how to age better. I'm Gregory Ann Cox, and I believe it's time to bust the myth that aging equals decline in every area of life. It pisses me off, and it's BS. Look, aging happens, but it doesn't have to ruin your life. You just need to get a little rebellious in your approach. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast, where I bring you guest experts, book reviews, and sometimes a rant from me about what is right and what is wrong with the conventional wisdom when it comes to aging as a woman. Men can listen in too, but really, this is a podcast designed for women. My guest today, I'm super, super, super excited to have because genetics is such a hot topic these days, at least in our country. She's from Australia. Her name is Dr. Judy Ford. Welcome, Dr. Ford. Thank you very much, Greg. I'm glad we connected on some podcasting site or something because when I wrote my book, Your Genes Do Not Determine the Size of Your Genes, it was really based on my interest in epigenetics. For women, mostly, you know, a lot of women want to lose weight and they say, oh, it's my genes. And <laughs> when I read about epigenetics, I thought, well, it can't be all our genes. And we're going to get to how much is genetic and how much not as we age in a minute. But I want to tell people a little bit, your whole entire career until recently was really studying genetics and becoming a geneticist. Yeah. Well, yes, I, I think actually I started off thinking I was going to be a chemist when I originally went to university. Then I didn't like the chemistry department and I'd always been interested in genetics. And so quite soon I found myself specialising in genetics. When you say you were always interested in genetics, what did that look like? As a young person, you were interested in genetics or as you got into medicine? Actually, if I really tell the full story, um, when I was very young and, and in those days we used to play what we called backyard cricket. And we used to play out in the little laneway behind our house and all the children in the neighbourhood would come in. And one day a little boy came who had Down syndrome. I was very affected by this because he was a very nice person, you know, and you could see he was very friendly, but he didn't have the skills to understand the game or what he should do. And the other children sort of found him to be a bit of a nuisance. Um, anyway, I went home that night and asked my mother what was wrong with that little boy. And she said, oh, um, it's something that quite often we used to call it mongolism, and it's mm-hmm. quite often something that happens to the last child in a, in a family. And so they recognised even back then that, you know, this was something that you know, a child was often born with this problem if the mother was older. And I think I made a decision then, you know, at a, you know, the ripe old age of about six or seven, <laughs> I was going to solve this problem. I think that was when, you know, my mindset was set. But um, obviously it's a long winding journey after that. Oh, heavens, And yes. by the way, I didn't do medicine. I've, I've just got a science degree with a PhD, not oh, a medical okay. degree. I think of them as intertwined, but thank you for the clarification. Yeah. When I was well, about we that age, together. Yeah. 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 You work with doctors or any kind yeah, of medical professionals. Yeah. Mm. When I was about that age, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a pediatrician. 
And I, you know, like so many kids would fix my dollies and teddy bears. And then I had a brother and sister <laughs> come along and I tried to mend them and doctor them. And who knows, I'm glad somebody was around watching because I don't know what kind of mayhem I could have gotten into because I used to create my own potions too. But as you wow. said, it's a long winding road. Yeah. And by yeah. the time I got to high school, my chemistry teacher said, you're not going to be any good at science. You should stick to language. And I was crestfallen. But I thought maybe she's right. And my mom worked and there wasn't a whole lot of support in the house. Like my mom was torn between working and three kids. And so anyway, I moved on from being a doctor, but I figured that this career that I've chosen is about helping people in a different way. So yeah, uh, I, yeah. I was happy that communicating that the ideas. Yeah. yeah. And, and interviewing, bringing people <laughs> like yourself, experts in the fields to my audience who also have lots of questions that we don't know who to go to, to get answers. So you got into genetics and yeah. what happened? Well, so when I started university, which was, um, I, I was very young when I started and, you know, 16 and I did this science degree and I majored in genetics, which was possible to do. However, you know, this was before human genetics had been invented as, oh. a, as a topic. So I was studying the genetics of, of plants and, um, and animals to a lesser extent. It was mainly what we call cytogenetics, so mainly looking at chromosomes and looking at the behaviour of chromosomes in cells and, and why chromosomes did odd things. In fact, my PhD was mainly electron microscopy and I was looking at how these particular chromosomes moved on spindles, which are the fibres that right. pull them apart, under the electron microscope. You know, so I started off really more as a cell biologist. After my PhD, I did one year's postdoctoral work, and initially one year's postdoctoral work, and I was going to work in radiation genetics. But as it happened, the professor who was going to be my supervisor he got uh, required to be the vice-chancellor. Something had happened at the university and the vice-chancellor left suddenly. And so this professor was given this promotion. So he wasn't there. So I couldn't do radiation genetics. So oh, you dear. see all these sort of little, little bits of luck have, have changed um, what I did. So I spent the year working with developmental biologists and learning about more electron microscopy and learning about the behaviour of, of cells and cell differentiation and how an egg, you know, grew to be an organism. So I was really, you know, focused very much under the electron microscope for all this time. But after that, I got a position which, at this stage, human genetics was just coming on the landscape and prenatal diagnosis was just being invented. And so I got a job, and I only worked in that for just over a year, developing prenatal diagnostic techniques, so oh, wow. learning how to grow the cells and learning how to analyse the chromosomes that you'd grown from the cells. So I did that for a year, and then I got another job, uh, sort of getting very popular at this stage because there were very few people who were doing genetics and so there were people wanting to employ you mm -hmm. so I moved on to work in cancer genetics 
And so I spent the next couple of years learning mostly about leukemias and chromosomal changes that occurred in the leukemias. So after that, because I knew about both prenatal diagnosis and those techniques and also about the leukemias and cancers, I got sort of headhunted for a job in South Australia and I moved down there and I actually set up um, a genetics diagnostic laboratory. So at first there was just me and my half-time assistant um, working in the corner of a laboratory and by the time I'd finished sort of 20 years or more later, I had a big, big research laboratory that I'd developed and, you know, about 30 or 40 staff. Mm. So then after that, we did, re- you know, what research we could. So very limited by the fact that I was running a diagnostic laboratory. And so this lo- diagnostic laboratory really had two angles. One was working... Um, in the obstetric area, so yes, doing prenatal diagnosis, but also studying sort of the underlying causes of infertility and miscarriage. Mm. Um, And then um, on the other hand, working very much on leukemias, so blood cancers, rather than solid cancers, which are much more difficult to to look at uh, genetics. And then after that, there were political changes and um, the government changed and they decided to centralise um, all pathology services. So we were either going to have to move to something quite different or give up or whatever. So I then moved my laboratory to a private business and sort of set up a private lab, which which I only managed to run for about five years. And then I got into trouble. And I got into trouble because I started speaking out, uh, finding out, finding results that showed that people who had been exposed to chemicals, particularly in the workplace, but sometimes where they lived, toxic chemicals, I was showing that they had broken chromosomes and um, that they were very sick. And there were a lot of powerful vested interests who didn't want people doing that and getting that publicity. So they targeted me and shut me down, basically. Oh, dear. So I lost everything. They lost everything. And so this is um, in 2000. After that, I decided uh, I would just start writing. So I started writing books and speaking and also did a lot of expert witness work in in legal work. Uh, And then after that, I wasn't making quite enough money for somebody who'd lost everything. Um, And uh, so I got a job at a university, but in that job, I just taught PhD students how to be better PhD students. So I was just teaching them about presentation techniques and writing and things. And so I did that for about 14 years. And then I was offered an opportunity for a, get a redundancy, which was a bit of money in my pocket. So I left and, and now I'm retired and now I'm, you know, playing golf and writing books and speaking and, yeah. I love Something it. And balance. you can pretty much say whatever you want now that you're not under somebody's 
Well, yeah, nobody's interested in me now. (laughs) Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Even if you make an impact on a small corner of your world, you know, that's a big impact, I think. Oh, yes, 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 that's right. It is more difficult to get your message out, I think, as an individual than if you're working in a university and, you you know, you've got PR people trying to pick up the work and promote it and stuff. But it's enjoyable. I just like to be able to get my word out a little bit more strongly than I can. Well, you keep doing podcasts and we'll promote you and we'll see how much we can help you along with that. Because I do, you you know, we, you and I are kindred in that idea that I have shined a light on big food and big pharma. And those are buzzwords in America. What does that mean? Just to say that prescription pad medicine is rampant in our country. I don't know about yours. And it's almost a cradle to grave system, right? They get you on, the baby gets formula, the baby gets shots, then they get something else and, you know, ADHD, whatever the meds are. I'm not saying that people yeah. don't benefit from medication. I'm not no, I'm simply saying some that, do. Yeah. that some, of course, and, you know, cancers mm. and things like that, we need the support of Western medicine. But I feel like it's, we get lulled into this complacency, especially at this age, you know, we expect, we are told the cultural language is all about how we are going to decline. How are, and I yeah. know that you're now focused on helping people with lifestyle choices and how to age well and better, right? Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. that you're not, I've, I always say, we never get sick from a lack of prescription medication. We just don't, right? <laughs> we get no. sick for other reasons. We may lack a good lifestyle. We may lack a good mindset. Yeah. Hardly ever yeah. from a lack of medication. But anyway, yeah. we can yeah. talk more about that. As long as we're talking about genes and aging, my go-to data, I read it everywhere that I look up, says that genes are 20 to 30% responsible for how we age, what we get or how we look. Is that, do you concur, 20 to 30? Possibly, possibly. I think it's hard to know exactly the percentage. Yeah. Um, there are obviously some genes that, that are very powerful, you know, and that people die very early, you know, very, yeah. very, very young. You know, some, of the, some of the really huge genes that, that have huge effects. And then I think that there are a lot of smaller genes that, if, if you like, it's probably better, not smaller, but less powerful genes. Okay. Um, and you need probably more of them to, to have an effect, you know, so that you can, you can have one and it won't have much effect. But if you have A plus B plus C plus D plus E, uh, then you may be very unlucky. There's no doubt that there are certain genes um, that are found to be more prevalent in in centenarians, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, so that people who really live a very long time are more likely to have some particular genes and they definitely won't have some others. But apart from that, I think it's hard to actually pinpoint that actual percentage. Let's say there may be mm, something like 2% of really important genes that will either define you in one direction or another. So, for instance, when I was quite early in the um, stage of running the genetics department, I did some collaborative work with a man in, in Canberra, and this was on a gene called the glutathione transferase gene. And, um, and that's a gene that is a major detoxifier, mm-hmm. right? So. That's one of our genes we need to look after as we're uh, and support as we get older. 
But he said, I'm not allowed to publish this, but he said, if you have a certain variation, so this gene, we know that there are well over 100 variations in this gene. If you have a certain variation in this gene, you can smoke all you like and you'll never get lung cancer. Oh, gosh. Well, that has to be true because we know some people. We may not know them firsthand. I don't have any uncles that are, you know, that, but... I know of people who smoked or drank heavily or yeah. and lived into the 90s. Jeanne Camon, however you say her name, the uh-huh. lady who lived, has lived the longest yet, she smoked until she was over 100. I mean, she was only smoking a couple of days in the last years. And she also exercised, you know, she was also riding a bike oh, that's and interesting. lived on the third floor and walked up the stairs, you know. Mm. So there are sort of balanced so there's lifestyle balancing, mm-hmm. but there's also, you know, straight genetic effects that she presumably had this really good detoxifying enzyme that, mm. that didn't, didn't let this go on to the wrong place. Sometimes it's a real combination, but there are some genes that, you know, you just can't do anything about. It doesn't matter what you do, that they're going to work in a certain way. Yeah. So you said we have to take care of our glutathione. Yeah. How do we do that? How do we take care of that gene? Well, these days you take care of it by making sure that you have enough of the trace elements it needs to to work. Now, trace elements are just that. They are trace elements. So you mustn't have too much of them either. But it particularly needs quite a lot of sulfur, and it needs quite a lot of selenium. Now, I'm thinking selenium from foods that have vitamin E, and would sulfur come from, like I think of sulfurifery. No, well, sulfur, yeah. So sulfur, let's talk about sulfur. So we do get a fair amount of sulfur from just eating protein, and if you're a person who eats a lot of garlic and onion, you'll that sort of food, you'll get a lot of sulfur. But quite a lot of people can't eat those foods. Mm. And um, I actually take sulfur in the form of MSM. Okay. Now, MSM stands for something which I can never quite remember what it stands for. I think it's very good. I think it's a very good supplement. I think you feel better when you take it. Okay. Um, But you don't need a lot. And, uh, of course, you know, they're, they're the sulfur bars. So you can't have sulfur bars in very many countries, but, you know, in New Zealand you can. You can easily go and have a sulfur bath in New oh, Zealand. Oh, who knew? You know, in the Bible we, we hear of all these stories of people who obviously had very bad arthritis going into the sulfur baths and being cured. Hmm. And, and it's true that if you, you know, have bathe in a sulfur bath, for a few days, not just briefly, not, you know, every day, every yeah. day for an hour, say, for about five days, you will actually get uh, quite a lot of resolution of arthritis. And so mm. it's probably easier to take sulfur. So the glu- glucosamine and uh, chondroitin, they are probably primarily given as a source of sulfur even though they are components of cartilage. And so that's probably why they were given, but, but it's probably the sulfur in them that is important. Mm. They're very large molecules, so people don't absorb them as well. So it's better to actually just have sulfur. Oh, interesting. MSM. 
MSN. Plug for MSN. <laughs> ah, there we go. But you didn't plug any brands, so we're okay. No, no, no. Didn't plug any brands. No, no. <laughs> but selenium. Um, yes. Selenium is, is incredibly important for both this enzyme and also there are a number of selenoproteins that are also sort of healing, damaging, correcting type of proteins. Again, you know, selenium is a trace element, so you, you shouldn't have too much. But if you have, say, three Brazil nuts a day, you'll be getting plenty. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds yummy. And not that's the roasted a, salted ones, people. Don't go for the cans of roasted salted nuts. Have the raw nuts, yes? Well, I, I have the raw nuts anyhow. Yeah. Yes, I get, I'm lucky enough to have a source at the moment of organic raw nuts. So oh. I, you know, have those. But um, they're a bit hard to buy at the moment because, you know, all the international trade has been so disrupted by COVID that, that a lot of supplies aren't coming in as regularly as they did. Yes. But anyway. Okay. Now, do you find that there are things, supplements, there are supplements that are sold as, you know, they're going to lengthen my telomeres, they're going to ah, NAD, nanonematicamide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk about those promising, or at least the marketing makes them sound promising, those things that are supposed to help with our longevity. Let me go to the NAD first, because I don't know much about NAD, other than that it's a critical energy source in your cells. I'm not sure that taking NAD would help you. I, I think that if you're optimizing your physiology by basically having the nutrients you need, that that, that should take care of itself. Mm-hmm. But we do know that the mitochondria, which are the little organelles that provide energy in the cells, that is decreased with age. So their function is decreased in age. And, and, and their function starts decreasing you know, as early as age 30. Hmm. And because the NAD, NADH cycle is, occurs within mitochondria, that's probably why they're promoting this. But the reason that the mitochondria are, are decreasing in function is because of changes that are occurring in membranes. And these changes that are occurring in membranes are a critical part of the ageing process and they are related to telomeres, I think that you probably don't benefit. Well, you might benefit from taking NAD. I don't know. I've never taken it. Uh, But I think that the evidence shows that the best way to increase your mitochondrial function is by exercise. Oh, interesting. Yes. So expend some energy and get more energy. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. It, it's, it's quite interesting. They sh- quite a long time ago now, there were some electron micrographs showing that if you did a lot of exercise, that your mitochondria actually increased in size in your muscle cells. Anyway, I don't know how selective those studies were, how generalized yeah. they are, but it all comes back to your telomeres. All right. Yes, so I the know. Telomeres, I know. and this is my whole book. Well, the whole first half of my book, While We Age, is, is focused on explaining this telomeres and what happens. Oh, good. I'm waiting for my copy to come. I, I haven't gotten it yet, but I'm excited about it. I didn't oh, know the telomeres were going to star in the book, first half of the book. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, they, no, so telomeres are terribly important. 
So telomeres are the ends of your chromosomes. And basically, every time, apart from a few cells, so there are a few cells in your body that can increase their telomeres naturally throughout life. And, and one of these cells are your B lymphocytes. And that's why you can still get reasonable response to immune things like, you know, having, having um, an inoculation, you know, you can expect to get a reasonable response for some time because your B cells can still keep dividing throughout life. But the rest of your cells have got a predetermined lifespan and the lifespan of your cells is determined by the length of the telomeres, which are at the ends of the chromosomes. And each time a cell divides, a bit of the telomeres is chopped off. So overall, the average size of your telomeres decreases as you age. And so in general, you know, you'd expect sort of an 80-year-old to have telomeres which were very much shorter than those of a 30-year-old. However, there are things in life that, that influence the length of your telomeres and so some illnesses in childhood and I can't quite remember which ones they are off the top of my head, they decrease telomeres prematurely and there are some genes that seem to decrease telomere length prematurely. The only thing that is known to increase your telomeres is having an older father it's a bit late to choose that sort of later <laughs> in life. But if at, at the time of conception, older fathers produce sperm that have slightly longer telomeres. And that's, that's so interesting. Of, <laughs> that increases your telomeres. Yeah, so they decrease every time the cells divide. So the thing we have to try and do is to reduce any excessive cell division. So that means, you know, for instance, not getting sunburned, okay. you're going to be renewing your skin cells all the time. But if you get sunburned, you know, you burn several layers at once and force the cell to, to um, Turn over. divide much faster. Yeah. And so this goes for everything. So it's most important to try and stay well and not sort of break your legs or break your arms <laughs> or you know, do any of those things that sort of are going to put pressure on particular organs and make those cells divide faster. I see. Certainly there's, you know, evidence that childhood illnesses reduce lifespan a lot and, and they reduce telomere length. So there have been, you know, early, it's quite, quite thorough studies showing that children who've had a lot of childhood illnesses have got much shorter telomeres when they're, say, 15 than, than children who are healthier. And the other thing that we know that we know prolongs life and also suppresses cell division is calorie restriction when we're young. Now, I don't know whether calorie restriction when we're older does anything much and there's not there's not a lot of evidence but certainly when we're young then calorie restriction and these most of the studies were done in animals but it's obviously true in humans as well 
And so when we see these people who have come through years of depression or, you know, serious wars and things has occurred years before or occurring still, of course, in some countries, then we can expect those people to live longer. And so I think what we're seeing at the moment is that quite a lot of older people, you know, the sort of, but they've all had serious calorie restrictions when they were young. Mm-hmm. So people like me who didn't, I really can't expect to live as long as my elders who, who didn't eat as much as me. Feeding ourselves up when we're young, we, we're reducing our lifespan. That's so interesting. So two things. Uh, I'll start with um, intermittent fasting and calorie restriction. Another mm. huge, I, I'm not going to call it a fad. I, I've read a lot of stuff that says, you know, maybe it is helpful for people with diabetes, inflammation yeah. to bring it down. But yeah. that is a calorie restriction that they're hoping will increase their longevity. But I think what you're saying is if we did it younger, yes, but we don't know yet whether it will now, if we do it at Precisely. 50, 60. Yeah. Precisely, yes. Uh, yes, that's right. And, and um, in animal studies, I think they found that it, it didn't work. So in animals, it didn't prolong life um, mm-hmm. if you did this later. However, it can have some, not directly, but it can have some beneficial effects on health. And so because it has that, then it might prolong life because there won't be so many other diseases and things. So Exactly. I don't personally deliberately calorie restrict. However, I, I find that the more I write, the more I talk. No, but later, in later years, I've been eating, I probably do eat reasonably calorie-dense food rather than, you know, I don't eat. I, I hardly eat any carbohydrates, for instance. So I don't yeah. eat any potatoes and I don't eat, I only eat a little bit of bread and, you know, I have nuts rather than cereal and, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and I find I prefer this and, and I'm feeling healthier and I have lost weight. But I know some people who, and I do think it's good to probably eat your meal, your night meal earlier and have a bit more space before you eat the next morning. Yes. Um, but I know some people who religiously stick to that and, you know, and say that they feel a lot better. So mm-hmm. I think it, there may be individual differences in how you respond to these things. So it may depend on other things that have happened to you as well during mm-hmm. your life. Right. So the genetic composition of us individually may determine whether we do well or not well on a restricted diet. I think, I think diet so. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, for instance, had to have my gallbladder out after I had my first child. And so this, I think, has made not having a gallbladder, I think, does influence your life in yes. many ways. So there's a whole lot of things like that that affect people that, you know, so it's very hard to work out all the individual differences. Speaking of individual differences, would you say, I'm not going to hold you, like you're not, I don't want to put you on the spot. Do you think that the future of medicine is in genetics in terms of devising medicines for people with a specific disease? I'm not talking about anti-aging. I've read all about that. I'm just saying like, mm. I know that cancer treatments are now, some cancer treatments, they use a genetic profile of the person and they create yeah. the chemo or whatever. Do you think yeah. that that will be, become more common rather than just for cancers, that it might be also for diabetics and it might be for other things? 
Yeah, I do think it's likely. Um, I think it may depend on how much it costs and, That's what I and how efficient yeah. it can be. You know, I mean, there's there's obviously a great difference between producing a very large batch of pills and producing some yeah. individual medicines. And so mm. at the moment, those types of specific things are very expensive. And as we know, you know, that this tends to rule the world. So I don't know to what extent that will, will rule out individual. But maybe, maybe we could be batched in some way. So, I mean, the simplest way of batching is this by blood group. I was um, wondering. And, yeah. yeah. And so if we, you know, if it was found that, blood groups influence some sorts of medications, for instance, you know, it would be helpful because there, there are obviously huge differences. And I know you referred to that uh, video I made where I sort of mentioned the, yep. the fast and slow acetylators, for instance. That makes a huge difference as to how you metabolise any sort of not just drugs or not just sort of pharmaceutical products, but also foods and other things. So where there's something like that, that that is a gene that is huge, where most of you are either fast or slow, and and you can divide up the world like you can with blood groups. I mean, I know there's there's a refinement, of course, in in all of these things mm -hmm. as sort of subgroups, but maybe maybe in the bigger group. We, we might have some specificities, but I just can't imagine that we're going to be able to afford. It depends. It depends. Yeah, I know. We, I mean, things move so quickly. Is. Think about when they first Ooh. sequenced the first genome, how long it took, yeah. how expensive it was, and then, you know, exactly, then, yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so, yes, that's right. And certainly I think, I think for major illnesses, we'll, we'll probably see this um, going down to more individual levels. But for everyday things, perhaps not. Yeah. I have one last question. I want to be respectful of your time and our listeners, but there are a lot of companies here that are offering genetic testing to determine what foods you should eat. Yeah. What do you think yeah. about that? Do we got some credibility in those ideas or...? Uh, uh, I don't, honestly, I don't really feel that I have studied it enough to okay, have that's fair. a valid view. But I think that it's probably, I mean, maybe if you're looking for one specific gene, there would be some specific genes about metabolizing substance A or B that you could look for and you could say, no, you shouldn't have X or you shouldn't have Y. But they're the sorts of things that you can sort of figure out anyway mm. uh, without genetic testing. Yeah. But I think when you're getting down to a sort of detailed level, I think it's fairly unlikely. But I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I'm just, uh, it's... I'd, be, I'd be interested to see more of their results, actually. And I should read about it. I should read the research and see what it says because I haven't really read it. Well, when you get done reading it, you can do a YouTube video for us. Yeah, all right. Yeah. So tell people how they can find you and your book, please. Okay. Well, now, how they can find me is probably go to my website. Okay. And I've, I've actually got two names, so you can get to it neither way. 
So it's probably easiest just to put drjudyford.com. So drjudyford is all one word, .com, and then you'll find it, and then it has links to everything. Okay, perfect. Okay. And your book is titled? My book is titled Why We Age. It's available in a hard copy, but, of course, that has to be posted, so that's a bit yeah. more expensive. It's on Amazon and Google Books as a, as a sort of Kindle or downloadable book, and uh, there are links to how you can get that on my website. Perfect. I could just have another hour with you because there are still many questions I know myself and my listeners have, so we might have to have you back again. That would be lovely. Yeah, to speak specifically about, you know, genetic testing for diseases and not diseases and things like that. But in the meantime, thank you so much for your time. This has been very, very great information and very enjoyable to speak with you. Thank you very much. And lovely, lovely to actually put a face to your name and um, have a (laughs) chat. Yes. Thank you so much. People be well till next time. I will be back again next week with another great guest. Take care. That's the end of another episode of the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If there's anything that you heard or hear when you tune in that you think would benefit a friend, a sister, a mother, hey, even some guys, send them my way, would you? And if you've not ever been to the website, rebelliouswellnessover50.com, head on over there. There are resources, things that I don't always get to on the podcast that might help you age better. Be well till next time and stay that way.